This is Pastor Terry Zabolski of Grace Community Church, located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Just like to thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We uh, hope and trust that God's word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Hopefully, uh, you did receive the handout. They're on the back table. They're always there when you come in. Uh, some of you are visitors and may not have known that. If you do need one, our ushers do have that. Uh, sermon handout available, please just raise your hand and they'll certainly get that to you. We're continuing, as I mentioned, in our study of Joseph, Yosef in the Hebrew. Uh, It's not about Joseph Gambusia. Keith was asking me today, he said, hey, look at this. And I thought he was talking about his dad, because Keith and Mary are getting married in August. And he was referring to the latter part of the title, the beginning of his sufferings. I, I know you meant that kittingly. Right, Mary? Maybe we better... Okay. <laughs> uh, Genesis 37. We're, uh, this is going to be... I just, I just know God is going to richly bless us through the study of this godly man. God's man for a season, Joseph. He is such a type of Christ, though the New Testament never says he's a typos or type of Christ. He is in so many, many ways and is a blessing to our hearts and lives. Well, man's inhumanity, man's inhumanity to his fellow man should never, never surprise us and ought to ever, forever, ever cure anyone's belief in the essential goodness of man. it's, It's incredible to me what man will do to fellow man I mean, the psalmist says, uh, what can man do to me? Boyce in his writing says, plenty, plenty. The inhumanity, the cruelty, the atrocities, it's incredible. And we live in this nutty day where men in their rebelliousness and women in their rebelliousness conjure up such nonsense as the humanist manifesto in the pure, the pure uh, uh, teaching of humanism that man is good. Now, there's an element of truth to it. We can do goodness. We are made in God's image. All that we do is not bad. Hitler could do very tender things to Ava, who we loved. Buy her a box of chocolates, get her some flowers. That's a nice thing to do. It's good. At the same time, order the extermination of millions of people in the death camps. You see, that's our dilemma. Man can do good. Even the worst, we'd say the absolute worst, can pet his little dog and give him a a biscuit and say, that's a nice little thing, that's good. But the evil, the dark side of our hearts, the humanist manifesto, which is the cornerstone of modern public education, is absolutely and purely unbiblical to the core, it's atheistic to the core, that man is essentially good. Or the teaching that goes along with that, that man is a tabula rosa, a blank, a blank tablet, like a white chalkboard. When, when, when a baby is born, he's not good, he's not bad, but uh, he, he is the result of everything that goes by way of marking on the board. Now, it's true that the things in life do influence us. No question about that. But that's antithetical to what the Bible teaches. 
the inhumanity of man to fellow man. Contrary to today's humanist, man is born with an evil heart and lost. Today, people don't know that they need to be saved because they don't know face-to-face what a terrible lawbreaker and evil there is in their heart. We're sinners, all of us. I am, you are, by birth. And we're born lost. We're not born, born on the yellow brick road that's going to see Oz. We're born on the road that's headed in the opposite direction because of the evil that we're born with. Our age is as barbaric as any age in history. Millions have been killed in the past few generations. I mentioned Hitler. Killed his millions. How about Stalin? Most of us even think he was worse than Hitler. Pol Pot there in Cambodia in the killing fields. Absolutely horrible. Idi Amin in Uganda. Hundreds and thousands. He just slaughtered his own people. The Chinese and in the communist regime. This is just in the fat past decades. It's horrible what man and women will do to others. Horrible. Horrible. Abortion in this land of the brave and the free kills unborn babies. We're thankful for the recent development in the Supreme Court where partial birth abortion has been finally stopped. Can't imagine the the horribleness of such a thing. The baby comes just about born, and then the doctor who swears to, to caring for life punctures the skull of the baby and sucks the brains out of that baby before that baby is born. I'm sorry to tell you that, but most people don't know what that horrible thing is that was crucified, really, on the cross of feminism and women's rights and I can do whatever I want with my body. Well, I agree that to some extent. That baby's not your body. I'm glad that the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 ruling, finally chucked that out, that travesty that was done in this country of ours. It is a battle of light and darkness. There's no question. Well, that's our day. Yet, I'll, I'll say, having said all that, it's not easy to find a parallel in history to the cruel intentions and conduct of Joseph's brothers. Now, we know we're in trouble when the Bible opens and Cain, the very first one born, kills his brother. Guess what? You're all in the Adams family. You ever watch that on TV? I used to like that. You're all in Adams' family. All of us. It narrowed down to eight who got off the boat, but we're all from that family, from through the line of Noah and his wife, traced back to Adam. And it's not a pretty picture. If the first one ever born turned out to be a murderer, that's our great, 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 great granddad or way back, however you'd figure that. We're in a heap of trouble. And that's right. Cain killed his brother Abel. But I say to you, where shall we find nine brothers, older brothers, conspiring to kill their younger brother Joseph? Wow. What evil. How horrific. Nine of them. 
Where was one to say, we're not doing this? Reuben, I mean, he tries to offer a plan B, but it failed, but it was weak at best. He was the oldest. He should have grabbed him by the throat. So we're not doing that evil. He's your brother. What's the matter with you? We are our brother's keeper. Remember that? Wow. Well, there are many lessons for us in this uh, narrative, this story. Chief among them, uh, even today, is, is, is for us to beware of the bitterness of the heart. Bitterness. You and I can have a heart that is filled with bitterness. You say, well, you don't know what's happened to me. I have a reason to be bitter. Listen, you probably do. We all do. All kinds of stuff happens. Have you noticed that in life? It happens. Life happens. It's not, and they live happily ever after. You know the little childhood stories your mother read? Close the book, and you went to bed, and that was wonderful. That never happened this side of Genesis 3. Never. There are some good days. A lot of days are sort of just normal days. And then there are some deep valleys and dark times. That's life in a fallen world. It is. In bitterness, your, re- your reaction to what happens to you, we need to be aware of that. It will rob you from being, if you know Christ, all that you ought to be in serving the Lord. Do you ever notice the Lord bitter? They arrested him. They pulled his beard out. They beat him. They bludgeoned him. He was beat beyond recognition. You see him filled with the bitterness of heart? I don't see it. I've read all the Gospels. None of them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's incredible. That's what God does in our life when we surrender even the injustices and the troubles that find us. We respond like that. Bitterness. Well, take care. I say to you, take care how you permit a single germ of sin to remain upon your heart. Be careful. Don't harbor it. It will sprout. It will produce fruit. And it will be poisonous. We're going to see that as we read the account played out in the life of Joseph and his brothers. Hebrews 12.15, write down that reference. Hebrews 12.15, the writer of Hebrews tells us in warning us about allowing a bitter root to grow up in our lives because it causes trouble and it defiles many. That's what he says. Well, three steps to murder, warning us to root out the sin of bitterness that's easily, easily, oh, it's so easily, lodges in our hearts. That's not right, we say. We have that innate sense of justice. That shouldn't have happened to me. You're right. You're probably right on all these things. That's not fair. I deserve better. All of those things are probably true. But it happens, doesn't it? It happened in the life of Joseph. It did. Remember the sin cycle of James chapter 1 by way of warning. For our sin always, if we don't care for that early lust or wrong desire, leads to death. James 1.13, lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Well, three steps to murder. 
warning us to root out the sin of bitterness that's easily found within your heart and in mine. The first step is our envy of others is the first step towards homicide. In chapter 37, verses 5 to 11, you can even back it up to verse 3, you see uh, the, the, uh, the very statement of jealousy, particularly at the end of verse 11. For the text tells us that his brothers were jealous or envious of him. Well, Joseph was godly. He was quite opposite all the other brothers. There was a goodness about him. He was redeemed, I believe, at this point. And he was the favorite son of his father. We talked about that, the peril of parental favoritism. Don't be a part of that. Treat your children equally. They all have different gifts and ability. They all have a purpose of God to play out, but treat them equally as image bearers of God and of God's gift to you. Jacob should have learned that. He, he, uh, he had a mother who favored him and a dad who favored his twin brother, but he didn't get the lesson. And so he passes it down to the next generation and lives to see the great pain and suffering resulting from that. He's the Joseph, the favorite son of his father. Joseph is more. He's the heir of the family's inheritance. Uh, We see that in John 4. uh, There, the woman at the well, Jesus tells us, Jacob only ever owned a little piece of land, and Joseph was the receiver of it in 434 of John. Joseph was made the manager of his father's business. The older brothers had disqualified themselves. Reuben, to a shame, had slept with uh, his father's uh, uh, concubine and had lost the the right to the firstborn, and so Jacob was able to give that to whatever son he wished. And he gave it to Joseph, symbolized in his beautiful, long, flowing coat. It was not a workman's coat. The workman's coat uh, usually was sleeveless and went only to the knee. You can imagine uh, being encumbered trying to do manual work with a long, flowing uh, uh, robot. You couldn't do it. Uh, the long flowing coat that Joseph was given by his father was that of the manager. Often the sons of kings would wear them. They, they were the soft jobs, the management job, the overseer job. And Joseph was given that by his father. And his brothers envied him. They were jealous of that. They wanted that. It was the green-eyed monster that was rising up deep within their heart. He was also the recipient of special dreams from God. Now, there are some of the writers that write of this passage that say that uh, really that uh, they weren't of God and, and that he was simply having a dream and probably wasn't wise for him to tell his brothers uh, the dream. But most of them, Calvin included, reject that completely and see it as uh, God's divine revelation. God in the Old Testament used dreams to speak, and we see that several times and occasions and even in Daniel's life, you remember that as we study that, but uh, he was the recipient of the dreams of God. Well, because of all of this, because of all of this, his older brothers envied him. They were jealous, and it produced a root of bitterness deep, deep within their hearts. Envy, be as defined as the ill will occasioned by another's good fortune. 
Somebody uh, seemingly has uh, good fortune. They do well on an exam. They're doing well in life. They have a job that uh, you would like, and, and uh, they seem to have health and a family and uh, everything else and, and whatever it is. Uh, maybe they can hit a ball further than you. And we tend to envy. Oh, I wish I had that. I wish I could be them. I wish I could be in that family or on that team or that, that kind of a thing. And what it is is more than that. It's you're wishing ill for them in the secret of your heart, the place where only at this point you know and no one else. And this produced a great bitterness deep within their hearts. Resentment, it's destructive. Have you noticed that? Resentment is not a positive thing. Resentment. And I'm not saying we all don't have grounds to be resentful of something. We do. You probably do. But if you allow it room in your heart and you allow it to, to fester there, it will come out in some very ugly ways. It's destructive. It is. Resentment leads to destruction. When I was uh, a younger boy, I loved playing basketball. We played whatever sports were in season. They don't do that much anymore. But uh, we'd play basketball during basketball time, football during football. We'd run track. We'd, we'd uh, do all those kind of things, right? Baseball during the summer. <clears throat> and I was, uh, I loved, uh, I peaked real early in basketball, like fifth grade. Yeah, I had a good shot then. The problem was everyone got better, and I didn't improve that much. So when it came to junior high, I was wrestling and doing basketball, but I made the, vars uh, the freshman uh, basketball team, and I was the sixth man. Now, you know there are five that play, right? <laughs> I sat on the bench a good deal. I got slivers sitting there. And I sat there thinking, I, I think I'm better than a couple of those guys, and... Uh, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, I didn't always have the best thoughts about who I thought should be sitting and I should be playing, and maybe they'd fall and break their arm, and all that kind of thing. As a young boy, I sinned in my heart sitting on the bench. That's what we're talking about here. I resented being there. I thought the coach was stupid. Now, he was smarter than me. I wasn't any good. He knew it. In fact, at the end of the year, you know what he told me? <laughs> He got me aside and he said, hey, now you're wrestling, AAA wrestling, right? Uh, Junior Olympic and all that. He said, I really recommend you do that. <laughs> now, that's quite an endorsement when your coach you know, hit the door, Jack, and don't, you know, I think you better. So I did that and that worked out good. But, but you know, that's what we're talking about. The, it, you're wishing for ill will to those who it's going better for. And it, it kind of boils at resentment. Well, Joseph uh, had uh, some dreams that were given to him. And I'm sure they encouraged him. And God knew he was going to need that in the years to come when God turned the lights out on him. I mean, he's carried away, we'll see that, in the, into Egypt, into slavery, into prison, and all that. And he must have wondered how in the world that dream would ever come to pass. When his brothers heard the dreams, of course, they did not respond well, as we read. 
any dream that depicted uh, Joseph, the kid brother, and if you had more than one brother and you were older, you know what I mean by a kid brother. He, at his dream, he was going to be the king, and we are going to bow down to him. Well, we would have taken him down to the local pond and had some fun with him there. And they responded the same. You mean we're going to bow down? The two dreams, one was agricultural. They were, their sheaves are going to bow down to his. And the other one was celestial or astronomical with the sun and the moon being his parents, the 11 stars, the boys, and they're going to worship the whole family. He's going to be the supreme, the kingpin of the whole family. Well, that was about more than they could handle because they already were filled with envy, resentment. And then they heard that, it was like throwing another wood on the fire because they didn't deal with it. And they're going to go from A to B to C. And that's how it is. People don't wake up one day thinking about attempting murder. There's a process, and it's deep within our hearts. And here it begins with envy and jealousy. They were jealous of him. Indeed, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 14.30, envy rots the bones. It rots it. Rots it. I don't know what you think of when you think of rot. You ever build anything and put it on a slab, and after a couple of years, I remember we built a shed and it began to rot. The wood was rotting in the back. Rotting, worthless. It rots the bones from the inside out. Envy rots the bone. Well, E, ultimately, the brothers resented God, didn't they? They hated God for it. For God is responsible for all circumstances. Therefore, envy really, essentially, at its root, is resentment of what God has done or what he is doing. Now, we can be very envious of people. Now, you're sitting there and you're looking pretty and smelling good and all that, but our hearts, I'm telling you, we can resent the way we look. I'm not tall enough. I'm too short. I'm too fat. I, I read in a, I read in, I told Jim yesterday, I read, Dinesh wrote this. He said he was in, uh, in India, from India, and he, he settled here, went to Dartmouth, and, and I believe he's a Christian, wrote, and he's a very prolific writer, and he said, he asked several, uh, several, several immigrants why they wanted to come to the United States. He said, we want to come to the United States because even the poor people are fat there. We don't have enough to eat. And look at that country is so filled with abundance that even the poor people are hefty. You may be too short, too fat, too tall, too thin. Maybe you don't look very good. You look in the mirror and you go like, my brother got all the looks. I got the brains, but he got the looks. I got nothing, he got everything. I don't know. We, we just, we do that, don't we? And women are particularly tough on this. Beautiful women, they look in and they see the, like the witch of Endor or something. I don't know. <laughs> Beautiful women are so tough on that. Like perfect. What is perfect? Or educated or family or you don't have this gift or ability. You just wish, boy, if I were just like that one in the office or that one at school, they're so smart. They don't even study. They get A's. I must, what's, I, oh, you see, and it can just work its way in there. I can't shoot a ball like that. I can't run as fast. I can't do this. I can't do that. 
I wish I had that job. I wish I, you know, it just goes on and on and on. There's a zillion things. But ultimately and finally, it's a lack of contentment, particularly if you're a believer, and being content with God, who ultimately and finally establishes all the circumstances of life. Did you know God never said, I didn't know? He establishes everything. And he wants us, if you know Christ the Lord is your Savior, to have deep contentment. It doesn't mean you can't have dreams. It doesn't mean you can't be ambitious. It can't mean that you can't try and improve yourself. You ought to do that. But there ought to be a sense of deep contentment for what God has done. For someone is always your better. Don't get into that comparison of any dimension type thing. The brothers, that's the world they were living in here. And they ended up, they hated their brother, who was good. He was a good kid. They hated him. It's fomenting ore. It's boiling. And it doesn't stop there, does it? It doesn't stop because it goes to the second step, the murder warning us to root out the sin of bitterness that's so easily found in our heart. In verses 4, 5, and 8, we see the second step toward homicide. If not dealt with, our envy always leads to hatred. It does. It always, always leads to hatred. Dr. Barnhouse wrote, How unfortunate that many are not willing to take their place which God has assigned them in the world. When a man is covetous and envious, he is saying, God, I'm not satisfied. You didn't give me what I want. Such a person is attempting to dethrone God. And when we allow it to fester, it doesn't stop there. It leaks out. It's like a vessel that has some hairline cracks in it. You didn't see it. You put something in, liquid in it. And what is this? On the counter, there's, there's a puddle. It's leaking out. Hatred will be the, that which leaks out of a heart that's locked onto envy and jealousy just like we see in Joseph's brothers. A, Joseph's brothers steadily grew in their hatred of him. The shoot of bitterness now grew into hatred, and their hatred of Joseph is stated so that we don't miss it three times in the text. In verses 4, 5, and 8, look at verse 4. Let me read that to you. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. And then finally, in verse, uh, verse 8, his brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and then because of what he said in reference to that dream. They hated him. They hated him. I got news for you. Uh, when a child, even a young, uh, younger brother, tells a dream, I don't know, do you dream at night? I usually dream. They say you usually dream early in your deep sleep. My father was kind of unusual that way. I remember he would say to me, oh, I had a dream, and, and then he said, oh, it, it continued the next night. I've got to say, I've never heard anyone say that. It's like sequels to dreams. I, I, I never heard anything. And when a younger brother, and he's a young man, you know, like 17 here, tells of a dream, you know, what, we don't usually hate people because they have goofy dreams or something. We, we don't. Usually we just say, oh, that's interesting. And then we go on and we don't even remember another thing about it. 
unless there's something else brewing deep in their heart. And in the brother's case, that's exactly what was going on with the envy and the jealousy. Well, they hated him. They hated him because of his dreams. Now, this, this hatred was not dealt with. It was not confessed. It was not forsaken. So now it's going to reach the boiling point. What they really hated was God's decree regarding Joseph. God had uh, given Joseph the dreams. He was going to be the premier ruler of the family. And ultimately and finally, they knew it was of God. And they didn't like their place. They weren't content. You rule over us? I don't think so. But ultimately and finally, it was against what God was up to that they really despised. And you know what? This put them against God. Do you know that that's always a precarious place to be? You like to be on the opposite side of what God is on? Would you like him to be your enemy? I don't think so. Some of you have uh, played sports and some of you have wrestled. Maybe some of you have boxed. And uh, you don't want to have God as your opponent. That's what it was doing in their case. Well, Jesus told us in B in John 15 that we as Christians would be hated by the world. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, and he tells us that we would be so hated by the world because we are different from the world like Christ. The world hates Christ. He's in heaven. They can't get to Christ, but they'll get to the little Christ or Christians. That's what that means. The world hates us because it hates the light, loves the darkness, and a Christian is salt and light. It is because we are different that the world hates us. And I remind you, it's not because of any reformation thing that you have done. If you are different from the world and you ought to be, it is only by grace. It is God's gift and blessing in your life that changes us, that makes us different from our neighbors, and our friends through the cross of Christ. Well, second, the world would also hate us and does hate us because Jesus tells us in John 15, 19 that we are chosen by God. Well, see, when we are hurt, here's a warning, through hatred. When we suffer deep travail of soul like Joseph, we must make sure that a root of bitterness does not grow out of our own life. It can. And if you don't prune it, it will. On the contrary, we must live as Joseph lived, trusting God to care for us even in life's injustices and deprivation. And so we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We must, we must or we too will be overwhelmed with resentment and bitterness and envy, and ultimately it will leak forth as hate, like in the brothers in this account. It's either bitter or better. You can either sit there and fester and become embittered over life circumstances and the injustices that happen to you, or you can turn all those over to the Lord and you can become better, Christ-like. And that's what God wants for each one of us. And so if not dealt with, our enemy always leads, always leads to hatred. 
And that's the second step. The third and final step, verses 18 to 24, we discover that finally, if left unchecked, hatred leads us to commit murder. For the end of sin is always death. It's always death. The sin cycle from James chapter 1. It's murder one with full intent and premonition to hurt by slander and slanderous killing without knives or to actually harm somebody because of jealousy and envy, festering into bitterness, leaking into hatred, and finally exhibiting itself in overt action. Now listen, man is the thinker. I say this to you, that's why Jesus said the heart is all important. You and I live in the realm of our thoughts. The heart is what we refer to. We live in that. It's a huge house with a lot of rooms. We walk along the corridors and the various rooms of our thoughts. And that's where the Lord must be victorious in our lives. For out of the abundance of the heart, it issues forth by the tongue, issues forth by the things we do. That's why our thoughts need to be pure and upright and honest, or we will end up living that sinful, hideous atrocity out in our own life. And so, here, envy leads to hatred. Hatred sprouts into attempted murder. It always ends that way. Well, Jacob, in our text, as we read, was concerned about his sons. All of them were together, and they took the large flock up to Shechem, Shechem is a place where the family got into all kinds of trouble. They, uh, their daughter had been raped. And so they tricked uh, the leader of Shechem, and uh, uh, they end up killing many, many men up there in Shechem. And so much so that Jacob rebukes his son and said, You've made our name odious here. It stinks. And they had to leave that area. Now they're down at Hebron, 50 miles south, and now it's years later. And now the boys are up there with the family flock, and he hasn't heard anything. It's like our Jonathan being in Chicago at school, and we'll call him and call him and email and email him, and we don't know if he got hit by a bus. Uh, we, we hardly hear back. He's so busy, I guess, and all the rest, Right? Where's, I guess, you know what he's doing, let me know. I, you know, it's not when I was in college, I had to have a change for the phone, you know. Uh, it's different. Jacob hadn't heard anything. They're up in Shechem, and you can imagine, oh, no, my boys are going to get hurt up there. They're going to turn on, they're going to they're harm him. He hadn't heard anything, and so it's just he and youngest son Benjamin home with Joseph, the three of them, and he sends Joseph. Go find out about your brothers and the sheep and bring back a report. So Joseph immediately responds and goes up there, 50 miles. I mean, it wasn't a little walk, and he didn't take an airplane, and he had to hike it. Several days' journey. Gets up there, nowhere to be found. And he's, and he's looking all over the countryside, and then, I mean, how would you do it? That's tough. And then he finally finds someone. Oh, I heard him say they were going up north, Dothan, another 20, 25 miles. And so because he loved them, and he did, he was concerned about them. And to follow his father's request, he went up there so that he could bring a report back. 
Well, at Dotham and B, far, far from home, and can I say it without parental restraint? The boys were far away from dad. Would they have done that down in Hebron? I don't think so. Far away from parental restraint. Joseph uh, finally gets the gist of where his brothers are. He hoofs it across the hill and the dale and the valley, and his brothers at a distance see him coming and be. And now they suggest now it's suggested, let's kill him. Maybe it they saw his long, flowing, beautiful robe. Who is that? Oh, that's Yosef. I hate him. Let's kill him. The Bible doesn't say who made the terrible suggestion. One of them had to. Uh, it is suggested, and maybe so, that Simeon, one of the brothers, made the suggestion. We know from Genesis 34 in the account there at Shechem that uh, he was unusually cruel and crafty. Even his whole ploy to revenge his sister Dinah. And then when you look at Genesis 42:24, there we discover Joseph being harsh, rather harsh with Simeon. I think it's right to assume that perhaps it was Simeon who first made the suggestion, let's kill him. Well, in one, under B, they said, we shall see then what shall become of this dreamer. Now, that was the point. It was the fact that he announced to them God's revelation to him in a dream, the truth that somehow he was going to rule and reign and be supreme over them and over their family. And so let's, let's kill this dreamer as if, and I remind you, the very truth of God could be subverted by the death of man, thinking if we kill him, then nothing will become of this dream that God gave him. It's absolutely impossible. Who is man that he can thwart the very purposes of God? Impossible. Impossible. God would, by such a complicated method, accomplish what he had purposed, for God will always find a way to accomplish his purpose. He will always find it. And that's some of the marvel here of Joseph. Who would have thought it? at this point in time where he's soon to be killed or thought that he was going to be God's divine plan to save not only the family but also the nation, but ultimately and finally the seed of the woman that would bear fruit to our wonderful Savior. I mean, if we're not gambling people, but if you were a gambler, the odds were stacked so much against Joseph being even remotely possible to be the one who would do that, you'd say, absolutely not, impossible. And the brothers thought, well, let's ex-nay him, and all of that nonsense of the dream will be ended forever. Well, this too also reminds us that no family is exempt from adversity. Here's uh, some called the promised family, the patriarchs. Why do they have such problems in their family? I thought our family was the only one. Here it is. Sin is evident in every family, in every person, and every family has its issues. Even this family, even among these brothers and their father and Joseph. And here the plan, plan the brother's plan is devised to kill him in verses 18 through 20, where they say, 
But they saw him at a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Yet God, we're going to discover, will overrule the hatred of these men. Calvin tells us the hatred of the brothers broke into utter madness. And he's exactly right. Well, what are the lessons that we learn? Let's quickly look at this. Number one, ask God to expunge any and every envy or bitterness, jealousy that may be lodged or harbored deep in your heart. It should be heart. I would urge you to confess that and repent of it. It doesn't end there. If you don't do that on a daily basis, it will leak forward in hate and even more in overt acts of all sorts of evil. You say, I'm not capable of envy or jealousy. I say, you're kidding yourself. All of us are, and all of us are envious and jealous at heart. Our sin condition is so bad. I say, get on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive you and to scrub your heart clean of such sin as envy and jealousy. Nip it earlier. If you nip it earlier, it won't result in the overt acts. Nip it earlier. It won't lead in the progression, the downhill declension of sin and its effect in our lives. Nip it earlier, and it's easier. Don't fester on it. Don't say, that's my own little world. If I want to be envious of my sister, I'll do that. I'll be envious of that workmate or my boss or my neighbor or this or that. I'll do it if I want to do it. Give it to the Lord. It'll truncate you and shrink you spiritually as to the man or woman you ought to be in Christ. Well, number two, by nature. By nature, man, that is mankind, men and women, all of us, we are born in sin. We are born in sin. That's us. Beautiful, smell good, but something's rotten on the inside according to the text. And we're not, uh, we're not good. Contrary to the way we hear it jammed down our throat in the culture and this new idea, which is not a new idea. It's an old idea that somehow man is innately good. We're not. Oh, we can do good. But in and of ourselves, we are not good. Only God is good. And we are not, really, our brother's keeper, are we? Cain said that to God. Am I my brother's keeper? He said it after he had killed him. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. But we are innately selfish and self-centered to the core. That's us. I'm jumping down and joining you. It's the grace of God that has changed us and is changing us through sanctification. C, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by man. The brothers thought, we're going to end this guy with his dreams, and that'll be it. Nothing will become of this. No, I don't think so. Nothing. Anything that shakes its fist against God, get ready. It will crumble. It doesn't matter if it's in academic halls of higher learning doesn't matter what kind of sophistication it is. God is not mocked. 
Whatsoever a man sows, he'll reap. The nations that forget God will be cast into the sea. No one will thwart the purposes of God. No one. For what he has planned, he will certainly bring it about on his exact timetable. And he's never late. You and I are late. I missed the bus. I missed the subway. I missed the appointment. I missed, I missed, I missed. God is right on time. He's a maker of time. He knows the end from the beginning and the plan all the way through. Today is uh, May the 6th because God ordained it and established it, and he keeps it. And we live on this planet that's hung on nothing. Nothing holds the earth up. Centripetal forces around the sun, the globe. We can describe gravity, but we don't know how it works. In all of it, history is, history is lineal. It's moving to an end. God's right on time. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Number four, be content in your life. The brothers were not content. Even when they heard that Joseph was going to have this special role, their godly response would have been, I'll pray for you. You're going to need it. If God has so called you to such an appointment as that, wow, I'm glad to be near you. But not the brothers. They were not content. And easily, our whole culture, you know, the Madison Avenue, if you don't have this deodorant, you're not going to be happy. And probably your friends aren't going to be happy. Mouthwash, clothing, cars, everything. Hey, you need all this stuff. And it breeds discontent. Why? Because they want your money. And we live in a culture of total discontentment. People aren't happy. They're not happy with their jobs, their wages. They're not happy with with life in general and all the rest, even though we live in a fallen world. God wants you to be content. Godliness with contentment, Paul said, is great gain. Only he can give that. God has his people at certain levels of life and all of that, different responsibilities. And for us to say yay and amen, God has given differences of gifts and abilities. Roger's been preaching on that lately. Amen. Boy, I'm not a mouth, but someone else is a mouth and a teacher. Amen. Boy, I'm glad I don't have. I have this contentment. Contentment with your station and place and the gifts and abilities and, and all in life. Godliness with contentment. The brothers didn't have it. You might not have it. Ask the Lord to fill your heart with deep contentment. May I be content with you? The answer is in Christ. It really is. The answer to covetousness, the answer to selfishness, the answer to the end is Christ alone. The old uh, verse in Hebrews 13, uh, 13, uh, 4 and 5, Hebrews 13, 4 and 5, it, the old translation used to say, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For why? He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You have everything. We have everything in Christ. And therefore, we ought to be content. Number five and last, we'll be done. Perhaps you have never been saved from the penalty of your sin. You're a lawbreaker. God gave the law not for us to keep it. Guess what? The law is bad news altogether. The Ten Commandments, bad news. It could only condemn. It could never save. You have broken the law of God. And if you break it even in one place, we are liars, we are thieves, we're dishonorable to our, our parents, we are covetousness, we're, we commit adultery of heart. 
let alone being unfaithful to God. And we are lawbreakers, and it condemns us, and all of us. And maybe you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must do that today. You have no guarantee of another day. It's so sad to see Mitchell was killed. He died of the uh, heart attack, that wonderful football player from Harrisburg. What a sad, sad thing for a great, great man. Jim, did you know him? I thought you did. What a sad thing. In his 30s, retired from the NFL. Family man. What a wonderful obituary in the paper. I don't know if you saw that. He was the head of our home. He was the joy of my life. He was something for my children. I thought, what an epitaph. There he is, 36, and they interviewed the different NFL coaches he had. They were shocked. 36, heart attack, go on. All I'm saying is, there's, we have no guarantees. You can step off a curb and get hit by a bus. I didn't see it. If you're not saved, you're at great peril. Oh, I'd urge you, before the day is done, get on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin and receive the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. I pray the Spirit of God opens your heart and would save you today. Well, that's Joseph, the beginning of his sufferings. It's going to go on for some time. We're going to have a lot to learn, and I look forward to that as we continue in the weeks to come in our study of this man for a season. Let's stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer. May the Lord bless you as you serve the Lord and honor Him with your life today and this week until we meet again. Father, thank You for Your holy word. Thank You for Your working in this young man's life. And Joseph said, what an example to us. To be so mistreated and hated and despised. He, he seems to be, be brimming over with innocence and faithfulness and goodness. And yet he's going to suffer such terrible things from his brothers. It should never have been. It's unjust. It's an atrocity. And yet it happens in life. It happens to all of us. I don't deserve this, we'll say. Help us, Lord, to be your children. Root out of us that envy, that jealousy, that, that bitterness that can easily lodge in my heart, in our hearts. Help us to be... Those are freed up from that through the blood of Christ. Make us a blessing. Comfort our hearts. Give grace. And we'll thank you for these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We're dismissed. The Lord bless you.